Sitting in the chair opposite me, I have Brent Jerva. Welcome back from Berlin. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm doing great. Well, I'm very time warped, but other than that, I feel good. Your time zone is somewhere over the Azores right now, I suspect. My watch says 1.48 a.m. is my current time zone. Yeah. So. For reference, for those listening, it's currently 7.48, so... Mm, it hurts. Mm-hmm. It's called jet lag. That's what it's called. It's called jet lag. So. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. But we're still glad to have you here, Brentley. Thank you. And because Brent's in town, uh, we thought it would be remiss of us not to have another Raleigh meetup. Uh, I'm really sorry that this is so short notice, but Brent stopping by was really a last minute decision on both of our parts. So as this show airs, the meetup will be the Saturday, April 8th. We're going to go to Cugino Forno. I think that's how you say it. Please, if, if anybody that speaks Italian can tell me how you say this place because because i go to this pizza place all the time and they do amazing amazing authentic italian neapolitan style pizza and uh, i would love to know how to say the name of this place because whenever we go i just say to my wife should we go to the italian pizza joint that does really good pizza because i can't pronounce the name (laughs) (laughs) oh so you're taking everybody to a local favorite that's fantastic Yeah, it's a really nice place. There's a little local brewery uh, right next door to the pizza place, so we can go and grab a couple of brewskis. And just across the parking lot, there's also some excellent ice cream as well. So we've got all the bases covered. So on Saturday, April 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be having a meetup. Now, just pay attention if you're on the meetup page. It's set to Pacific time, so it says 12 p.m. on there, but we're not going to show up till 3. So if we show up at 12, you're just going to have to drink a lot of beer before we get there. Okay. Yeah, maybe not a bad idea at all. (laughs) You have a little bit more heads up, but not much for the Jupiter Broadcasting Linux Spring Meetup in Olympia, Washington, the capital of the state of Washington. Should be a beautiful time, traditionally, when Linux Fest has been. And we're picking our location now. We know it'll be in Olympia on Saturday, April 29th, around 1 p.m. Pacific time. This is the one of the few times where the time on the meetup page is actually accurate because we are actually in the Pacific time, always something to watch out for. And I know it's going to be a great time because I'm already bugging Brent to make it. And Wes happens to know some of the best places to eat in Olympia. So we're going to pick a good place. We'll start uh, organizing and uh, releasing more details on the meetup when we have it. But we wanted to let you know, April 29th, the end of April, if you're in the uh, Pacific Northwest, come on down to the Capitol and let's hang out and talk Linux and self-hosting. Sounds like a great time. You're really spreading yourself around over there, Brent, aren't you? Yeah, you know, my goal for this year is to reach the most uh, JB meetups ever. I think, well, how many are we on now? We well, if, did. You, if you mm. keep hosting them and you host them, then that's a pretty good way to do it. <laughs> well, it's yeah. self-serving. I mean, it's working out for me. <laughs> All right, you do that. I'll go for the largest and we'll see. Well, that could be a lot of fun, actually. I think it's a good goal to have. Competition, ladies and gents, competition. <laughs> well, because I can't do the frequency this man can. No. I just can't. Can't keep up. I go for quantity and quality at the same time. He goes for frequency and quality. And distance. Both good. Yeah. Yeah. And distance. Yeah. But, you know, I, I really can only reach out in the local area most of the time. But as we travel out, it's useful to be on that meetup page, too, because when one of us is visiting an area, we do try to do a meetup. I wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you who subscribed to my YouTube channel in the last week or so. I got to over a thousand subscribers somehow in basically two weeks. I honestly expected it to take a lot longer, so... I'm extremely grateful, and uh, I will keep the videos coming. I'm going to do something around my 10 gig network upgrade whilst Brent's here, get him to help me shoot some stuff down in the basement and uh, try and do that justice. But we'll see how that goes. It's quite an ambitious project, but 
We'll see. You know, when you when you told me you were going to do a uh, topless YouTube tech channel, I thought <laughs> there's not a market for that, but it truly is a niche. Nobody else is doing that, and it's working really well. So, if you want to see Alex topless, you'll have to go check out his YouTube channel. What I need to do is start wearing some tight shorts as well, and then I'm really in. I was surprised the thumbnails worked as well as they did. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of AI generated thumbnails, we've been looking at Whisper as a service this week, which is a AI transcription service, which we're going to be using as part of our new podcast backend service. You want to tell us a bit about that, Chris? This is so, so neat. And even if you're not trying to transcribe a podcast, you probably have a video that you would like to get the text from, or like for me, maybe like some event, some conference happened and it's, they got an hour long talk and I could just throw that through Whisper. It's OpenAI's transcription project. It has lots of language support. It has pretty good models that you can just grab and go with. And there's various forms of it, versions that run on the uh, GPU and versions that run on the CPU and command line versions and Mac desktop versions, and of course, versions you can run in Docker. And we've been messing around with uh, a version that's known as Web Whisper. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's fantastic. Also, WAS, Whisper as a Service, which also runs on the CPU. So you don't have to have a crazy big GPU and has a beautiful UI. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And the, 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 the way we're using it right now is we're throwing everything we can find at it talks, different podcasts, YouTube videos. Um, speeches, and we run it through this thing and see what its results are. And ultimately, our goal is to just have it as part of our encoding pipeline. But what I have found in experimenting with it is I'm always, always going to have one of these Web Whisper instances running on my land now. I, I don't have it set up yet, but inevitably I will because I have found it so handy just to have a web app that I can just throw an audio or video file at and 15 minutes later, or whatever less, it spits me out a complete transcript. And then I can search that and grab the text. I mean, you were just talking in LUP, which actually airs after this episode, confusingly, which you just recorded half an hour ago, about note-taking systems. Uh, LogSec, I think, was talked about, a couple of others. I use Obsidian, and I can just imagine something like this Whisper thing shooting out that subtitles file into a dedicated Obsidian vault and then I use the OmniSearch plugin and I can actually just search through all the text for a specific keyword or it's going to be super powerful for, you know, those YouTube videos that are 15, 20 minutes long. That could be three. And you think, I just want this one specific part. Where is it? Mm -hmm. And they're getting nice. That's why I wanted to recommend WAS. Uh, Wes found this. It's W-A-A-S, the Whisper as a Service one, because it's just Whisper as a Service. Yeah, you got to whisper. It's like um, so pretty that it looks like a consumer grade application. It's got kind of like a beautiful dashboard and you just load the page and it's got a spot for you to drag any kind of file that basically FFmpeg can read for the most part. And then something else that's nice in some of these is you can also tell it to do double speed transcription where it essentially plays the audio file at double speed. And if it's good, clear audio with good, clear speech, It'll pick that up, no problem. And yeah, it's not perfect, especially with some technical jargon. Um, it messes up some accents sometimes, but it's also pretty good at auto-detecting language as well. And let's face it, if FFmpeg can't play it, then, you know, you're pretty much out of luck anyway. Yeah, there's probably something wrong with that file. Mm -hmm. And Brent, you kind of saw a practical implementation from our friends at NextCloud. They're baking Whisper into Hub 4. 
Yeah, it was kind of amazing. They're baking a whole bunch of different types of AI into their newest release. And it was neat to see, you know, just they're using a launcher that, that they call the, what do they call it again? The picker? The smart selector? Smart picker. There you go. Smart picker. Smart picker. And um, it's just like at your fingertips. And I thought, that's really super handy. And it's sort of what you're talking about, Chris, just having something just right there ready for you to throw something at anytime you're ready for it. And uh, that seems pretty darn powerful to me. I noticed Slack has started doing this. When you drop a video into a Slack chat, they're adding a little transcription below the video. And uh, Telegram is starting to offer this as a premium feature for video and audio messages on Telegram. And I think this type of stuff, the like Whisper, is the signal in the hype noise, right? This AI stuff, some of it is really legitimate and useful, and some of it is just kind of tech industry hype cycle stuff. But this Whisper stuff is 100% usable even on the CPU. You just have to make sure it's a Whisper CPP project. And Whisper CPP means it runs on the CPU. And then the more cores you have, the faster it goes. We have a 96-core Linode that we run it on. And I can, I can transcribe on the CPU hour-plus content in 10, 15 minutes. And they have even better transcription if you can use the GPU, but you just need a lot of GPU horsepower. And it'll scale, right? So if you don't need it super fast, you could run it on an average CPU. It'll just take longer. And it's 100% local when you're doing that. You can also call in the open API for Whisper if you want and get even more features, but I don't think we've been doing any of that. And it's been running fantastic all locally on our own box. In one of the YouTube videos I released this week, I decided to try and cut through the hype noise a little bit myself, uh, not using Whisper, but I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could ask ChatGPT to deploy some containers for me? And so I, I just wanted to throw you over there and, you know, make you go and like, comment, subscribe and all that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Tell them to hit the bell too. Oh yeah. I actually have said to my wife, I refuse to say any of those words in the you actual just videos. Said it. You just said it. I know. But no, it's not in a real video, so it doesn't count. <laughs> you are on video. It's just live video. Bending the rules. Bending yeah. the rules. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but it wasn't on your YouTube channel. It's on a different YouTube channel. So it, I think it, I, I think you're okay. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm okay. I get away with it. But the idea behind it was thinking, well, how good is some of this AI stuff? You know, if I ask it, write me a Docker Compose file to deploy traffic with a DNS token and blah, blah, blah really interesting results and i think things like that video that i made and then things like whisper coming along i've also been using midjourney to generate a lot of the thumbnails and a lot of the artwork for the the channel i just i feel like we're at such an amazing inflection point in technology that we haven't seen in i don't know like since the iphone maybe yeah since mobile i think yeah i agree Mobile and the internet. Except this time it feels more obvious. I don't know, mobile didn't feel particularly obvious at the time. This one feels like it's going to be such an obvious disruptor. And uh, I don't know, it's certainly not ready to take our jobs quite yet, this stuff. But, I mean, if you're a transcriber, it already is taking, taking our job. That is true. I, uh, I think I worry about the self-hosting aspect of it. Because the obvious direction this is going to go is for better and more complete and comprehensive AI systems, you're going to have to have larger 
at more intense models, which is going to force centralization in the large data centers and essentially make API services locked behind an API. And because that means the front end is cheap for the customer to use because it's just a web interface or an app or some kind of integration, it's like no cost for user adoption. It's just cost on the back end. It makes it really easy and uh, reduces barriers for users to jump on the centralized stuff. And I think when we look at what we're going to be able to run on our own lands with our own computer resources, it's going to be more purpose-specific things. And it's not going to be these comprehensive systems, for better or for worse. And that's why it's nice to see Whisper can be run locally. But I do kind of worry that self-hosting is going to be left out of this revolution a little bit, at least the really big stuff, right? Like your, uh, your chat GPT three and four type type systems, just not really feasible to run them locally. Maybe there could be optimizations, maybe accelerators built into CPUs over time will bring it back locally. But I have a feeling that history is going to bend for a while towards centralization on this one. How do you feel about that? I don't see how we can possibly have a large enough data set to actually produce an accurate outcome on my little podunk basement computer, which isn't that podunk or that little, to be honest. But, you know, we're talking these data centers, high performance compute data centers that are required to do these AI grade computations. They are probably operating at a scale that is not quite nation level, but probably not far off in terms of the capital that's required to have performance systems. I agree with you completely. I think that self-hosting a lot of this stuff is practically impossible because the data sets just aren't large enough. And we've seen, we've seen with the uh, lady cylinders, haven't we? The effect of trying to do like a Mycroft locally versus the power of a Google home or the, the, uh, lady that shares my name cylinder uh we've seen just how different in terms of quality of responses those two things are and i think that's quite analogous to what we're talking about here if you don't have the data set that really is that really is the problem but it gets me thinking a little bit about like photo um search and things like that the photo systems that we've seen come out running locally in the last year are rivaling some of the like Google images and things no, like that. Not. Oh, okay. Okay. Not I take that back. Close. Forget about it. Then. I mean, f- well, I mean, photo prism and image definitely have much better search. Like image recently did an update now where I can go in there and I can search for pictures of dog and car and it will only show me pictures of Levi that have a car in it. So it's getting there, but yeah, it's not, I mean, it's getting there. I mean, an, an example, I was looking for a specific photo in my Google photos the other day and I said, two blue cars in garage and it understood what I meant and showed me only pictures of two blue cars in a garage. You, you said garage instead of garage. garage. And it knew. Right, darling, garage. <laughs> <laughs> you Americans, whatever. Before we get too far off the uh, self-hosting of this AI stuff, something I've been enjoying and it's better than using the web interface because you get to do more stuff is chat GPT UI. It is a stupid, simple, Docker Compose a way to run a local web client that uses the open API, ChatGPT API. And the reason why you want that is because A, it's ready to go with GPT-4 support, but B, you can have longer conversations with less restrictions. It can follow links. You can set up short codes and your own quick keys with a repository that stays in the UI that you can then do like slash and the name of your 
preset prompt and it will fill it out for you with variables. Ooh, that's nice. It's really nice. And I can just keep it up in a pin tab and it's, it's still using the API. So it's still sending the data to open API, but the, the interface and where it all sit, all sits, all the results and your prompts and the UI itself are all local. And because you're using the API instead of the, the public web interface, you can do more stuff with more functionality. And you just have to go get a developer API, which is pretty easy to do. Anybody can do it. And it's super easy to get set up. And it's kind of a generic name, so I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called ChatGPT-UI on GitHub. Is that API token free? Yep. Oh, cool. Yeah, you just have whatever your account can do. And if you have a free account, you can do more with this self-hosted UI than you can through their interface. And then, like, if you signed up for ChatGPT4, if you're, on, if you're one of the people that gets access, because, you know, it's gated, uh, the UI chat UI is ready to go for it. It works really good. That's really cool. I will say, I think that uh, there are some existential threats to AI that we, you know, it's it's very easy to to listen to the doom and gloom and think, yeah, it's going to replace all of our jobs, and oh, we're really in trouble. But the reality is, if you if you say just like, um, you know, can you write me some code, and it spits out something that looks close enough to the untrained eye and then you go and try and run that code because you didn't cognize how it worked as you wrote it you actually have a harder time debugging it when it doesn't work and then you end up in this cyclical loop with chat gpt saying can you actually supply the right environment variable here or where does this where does that output and you try to spoon feed it all this stuff which you as a human have learned over the years and there's a way to go is what I'm trying to say. I think a lot of the fear mongers are probably going to be right in 10 or 20 years time. But for right now, I think we're still okay. I think the ironic thing too, Alex, it's a great point. I think the ironic thing is that you have to kind of be an expert in order to use this tool correctly because it will get it wrong and it can get it wrong in confusing ways. They call it hallucinate. It can get all kinds of little things wrong. And if you don't know what you're looking at, I think you're right. If you don't have that context, that's a, that's a good insight. And um, I would recommend that people play around with it, but don't use it in production unless they are comfortable replacing like some of the variables that might supply you or paths or things like that. At some point we ought to have a chat about data sovereignty and, you know, archiving and all that kind of stuff around. I mean, all the data people are throwing into chat GPT, where does it go? Tailscale.com slash SSH. Actually, it's self-hosted. It's not SSH because SSH goes to the other thing. I love me some Tailscale. I was using it today. You know the the new Git-T self-hosted actions thing that we talked about last episode? I wanted to take the perfect media server wiki, which I've been using in a GitHub action for the last two years. I wanted to self-host the building of that website. I wanted to use my local Git-T container registry and then pull it on my cloud node and the reason i wanted to do that is because eventually i want to get jupiterbroadcasting.com done in a much similar way and that's my test bed before we move jb.com i wanted my linode vps to be able to reach my local git server and I, i you know i have a specific dns entry that i don't really want public for my local self-hosted git repo because there's a lot of secrets in there that you know i back code up from everywhere and uh, i thought well, why don't I use the magic DNS built into Tailscale, use a split DNS, and for that specific domain, treat it like a split DNS and use a specific name server, which happens to be the one on my LAN, accept the routes from Tailscale to come in on the cloud node, and then I do a dig 
you know, resolve my git server.url just worked. That's neat. Oh, it's amazing. I love it so much. It's amazing. Also in public beta now, I think like since the last time we did an episode, Tailscale Funnel, which allows you to route traffic from the wider internet to one of your Tailscale nodes. So if you want to just publicly share a port on your node for something like I was thinking, like maybe you're a dev and you're working on something internally and you want somebody publicly to test it. You could use Tailscale Funnel to expose that web port or whatever to somebody while they test it. And they have fantastic documentation on how it works to run you through everything, how you need to set up DNS if you want to do that. If you want to give it an SSL cert, which that could be awesome, too. Now I'm thinking about that. I remember futzing around for so many days trying to understand SSH port forwarding, local versus remote forwarding. Like, what is it doing? And this funnel thing just solves it so elegantly. Well, especially because now that I have Tailscale set up, I don't have any inbound ports. And so if I ever do need something, if I ever do want to open something up, this is how I'm going to do it. I mean, I don't have the need right now, but this is how I'll do it now. And, you know, I run my entire phone. Everything on this is done over Tailscale now. It just runs persistently in the background, and I just love that. So try it out, tailscale.com slash SSH. You can try it for free up to 20 devices. They have a nice UI. It only takes a couple of minutes to get it working on any device you got. Super easy to get running on NixOS, too. I was really pleased to see. And uh, also really easy to get running all your mobile devices. Alex and I are big fans. Do you run NixOS, by the way? Oh, yeah. By the way, I don't know if you picked that up. Did you Did you gather that? Because, yeah. I also run it on my, this is the other thing. This was where I had like the, the big moment, the big brain moment was when I realized I could run it on my VMs. And so I could have projects here at the studio that are in these like VMs that have their own crappy NAT and all that kind of stuff. And I could go home and keep working on the project. And I didn't have to do any weird networking stuff on the host and the VM or on my firewall. I just put Tailscale on my VM. Throw a VS Code server Docker instance into that subnet and then you can remote into that vs code instance as if you're in that local with the remote ssh ah oh. chef's kiss it's wonderful oh that's a good tip that's a it's good wonderful tip. that's worth it right there and you get it for free up to 20 devices at tailscale.com slash ssa uh, slash self-hosted sorry ah it's slash self-hosted not ssh because ssh is already taken so it's slash self-hosted why don't you introduce us to the wonderful world of Home Assistant Victron integrations? I know this has been a huge, huge deal for you. This is one of those wins that's so epic in scale that days later, I'm still vibing on that win. You know, like for me, I don't know about other people out there, but for me, wins have a very short shelf life. And then I'm right back to what needs to be fixed. What's wrong? What are we working on next? Mm-hmm. Uh, not this time. This is a win I am basking in. I am lathering myself in this win. (laughs) I have wanted since the moment uh, I got Home Assistant up and running. So Victron background is sort of the brains of my electrical system. It's what manages power from shore, batteries, solar. It's my inverter. It's my charge controller. It's a very sophisticated piece of gear, and it knows everything about what's going on with my system. And there's a lot of ways I could have chosen to integrate a Victron into Home Assistant and probably ways that would be technically superior using MQTT and stuff like that. There's a lot of ways I could have done it. I actually did have the MQTT route set up until it totally smashed my old Home Assistant system. But this time around, just 
just on a random Sunday. I'm sitting there on the couch with the laptop, poking away at Home Assistant, and I look in Hacks. That's the Home Assistant community add-on store. And I see a plugin called, and I'll have a link in the show notes, Victron GX Modbus TCP Integration. And my heart stopped. I knew what this meant, because I've looked into this. I knew what this could possibly mean for me. And I paused, took a, took a deep breath, got everything up to date, did my backups, and I sort of prepared the way. I got my body ready, and I loaded up hacks, and I installed this Modbus TCP integration. Now, Modbus is a communication protocol that's really no longer owned by any vendor. It's been around since the end of the 70s. And it's just sort of been used in industrial equipment as a de facto communication protocol. And so a lot of these factory type things and gear that has this information use Modbus. And Modbus TCP, as you probably guessed from the name, puts it on the TCP network. And um, this plugin allows Home Assistant to speak Modbus and pull in all of the metrics, all of the sensors, all the data points from the Victron equipment and bring them in as entities into Home Assistant with sensors. And um, this is a game changer for me. It means now that my Home Assistant system is aware of the source of power. So if it's from the shore, if it's from solar, if it's from batteries, generator, if it's a mix of those, it knows the state of charge of my battery bank and the rate of discharge if it is discharging and the rate of charge if it's charging. It knows the current draw of the battery bank. It knows the current draw of shore power. It knows the current draw of solar. Any errors the system has generated anywhere, any battery problems, any heat issues, anything like that, it knows about, and it's sending it as a sensor into Home Assistant. So now in my automations going forward, I can have an automation be aware of the source of power. If I have unlimited shore power or if I have precious short battery power, that can all be taken into consideration. And I can also expose any kind of problems the system might be having. And I can expose other information that we need to know about. Um, like one of the things we do frequently is we can limit the draw the RV might have when we plug into shore power. We can say, don't draw more than 15 amps so you don't blow this circuit. And because it's a 50 amp connection. And it's easy to forget you've done that. This happened recently. We left and forgot that we set the limit. And the next time we plugged in, we weren't getting enough power. I can now just I just have a I just have a card in Home Assistant now on my power dashboard that just shows me what my limit is currently set at. I can that's a number I can now expose to Home Assistant. And it all refreshes every 15 seconds. And how much would you pay for a commercial system that had that level of sensor, not censorship, but you know what I mean, like the amount of sensors yeah. and data? Well, um one of the ways people get this into Home Assistant traditionally is they buy like an 8 900 dollar Linux box that this company makes, Vitron, Victron makes, and they they interface with that. And so some people will pay up to a thousand dollars plus install time for it. So yeah, I'd, you know, I considered one of those boxes because it's one of the more elegant ways to do this. But you know what's fantastic too is Home Assistant automatically detected which sensors are like the sensors needed for plugging into the Home Assistant energy energy usage dashboard stuff. So now I'm getting in Home Assistant our energy usage, what of that mix is solar, what our solar production is versus projected, current source of power, the cost, because I'm looking up my local cost. So now I know what my run cost is when we pull. I've used $4.12 of power today. 
Um, and I can see how much my solar covered, which is not much today because it's pretty cloudy overcast day. No, in the Pacific Northwest. I know, right? Weird. And it's been really interesting to just kind of start collecting this information. And then because it's a sensor in Home Assistant, I'll, I'll have data that can help me see if batteries aren't functioning well. Like there's all kinds of information I'll be able to expose over time as well. So what's the coolest automation you've got planned for it then? I'm, I'm imagining obvious stuff like AC only runs under certain conditions. Yeah, for sure. Definitely the electric heaters won't run when the battery, uh, when the power source is battery and not sure. I think that's number one that I'm going to probably set up in the next weekend. Um, and I'm looking forward to maybe looking at like a low power mode. I don't know exactly what this is, but I'm almost picturing like a different set of automations that get turned on and off depending on, on the power source. And then along with that, I don't know if this is possible, a different default dashboard mm. that gives us different options and stuff. That would be really interesting. So like it's, and something, the other thing I've thought about too, is like when in low power mode, what if high power devices, when they get turned on, they automatically have a 15 minute timer, unless you turn it off that disables them after 15 minutes and things like that. Maybe you could shut down a few raspberry pies. Yeah. 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 They're not usually the offenders. It's usually the, the big one is the, like the electric water heater, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Toaster oven. Yeah. The toaster oven. So I start thinking too, like maybe it's time to start looking at some Shelly's for DC devices and AC devices. I, I really, I'm looking forward to also tying in the real time energy data I have from all the smart plugs that do have that. Like all the Z Wave and Zigbee devices are giving me real time draw at the individual plug level too which is just more information to bring together and start making decisions. You know, I remember the exact time and place where you were both talking about this exact topic. Um, oh, yeah? At least when I was listening to it, I remember the time and place. You talked about it clearly slightly before then because it was recorded. But I was listening to a self-hosted episode like two years ago where a listener had, you know, played with something similar. And I remember you being super excited, but... It, the, the method of getting the data was so convoluted back then. It's amazing what, you know, two years of someone who clearly put in a lot of work to write this piece of software for you <laughs> is going to help a ton of people. This is like a huge breakthrough, really. I would love this for my house, not just an individual house level energy monitoring, which is what I have now. I, I have um, that CT clamp thing that we built as a as a group, as a group of listeners. We, we, we did a group buy on on something a, you know, a couple of years ago now. So I have like things like my AC units on there. You know, there's only, there's only four channels, so I can't monitor everything. But there are companies making residential circuit breaker panels now that have some level of integration with smart stuff. A lot of the commercially available ones right now are hot cloud garbage stuff, which are super expensive and locked into their monthly subscription, all that, all that crap. I just want somebody to make a Tasmota compatible generic residential circuit breaker to go into a normal fuse box and then that then plugs in through ethernet not wi-fi i don't want 25 <laughs> different wi-fi devices all right next to each other uh that would be that would be sick but um you know you've basically got that with this modbus thing don't you it's huge and you know to both your points uh one of the things that's i think kind of a lesson Maybe I'm not quite sure what the lesson is, but I'm feeling like there's a lesson in here. There was probably five different ways I could have figured this out. One of them involved buying equipment. 
One of them was sort of like this funky, crazy way to extract the data. Another one was like this hose of information that crashed my system. And then the other that I have to be honest, I was tempted by, I was legitimately tempted by because it was just buy a cloud package service, hook up to the API, install an integration, done. Put the key in home assistant, call it good. And it just pulls in. It, my, my Victron would upload all the same information to their Victron cloud. And then my home assistant would stream it back down to me. And you guys know I'm trying to build this thing for complete, total off-grid access if I need. If I want to go somewhere with no internet to relax, I want all this stuff to work. But I was tempted by that. And I was tempted by the, the time just to buy the little embedded Linux box. And then I could, you know, hey, at least it's Linux, right? And I waited. And this came along. And it's so simple and so straightforward. And it's all over the land. When Jeff was up there with you a few weeks ago, you were getting into the ESP home side of things. Yeah. What I'm picturing is some kind of custom 3D printed like LED dashboard based on certain parameters, certain lights come on and certain colors, like a traffic light system. And could you have it so that, you know, when your batteries are above 80%, that it's just green across the board and then... You know, you could you could almost switch modes based on you know, like um, you ever seen these shots of the inside of like a, a railway company's like signal room or something, something like that. You're making me think of in the in Star Trek in the original series. <laughs> yes, the Enterprise would... en- Engineering Room has like one of these boards you're talking about. I was just gonna say that. That's, that's amazing. That's <laughs> it. Minds. That's what you Great need, minds. Alex. That's so brilliant. You could do that with ESP Home pretty easily because each LED, don't forget, is individually addressable. So you could do it probably with just one ESP device in there. That'd be so cool. Linode.com slash SSH. I'll head over to Linode.com slash SSH and get $100 for 60 days on a new account. It's a great way to support the show while you're checking out fast, free, reliable cloud hosting. Best support in the biz, too. They just won a Stevie Award for fantastic support. Real humans all day, every single day. We were talking about, you know, Whisper. We were specifically testing what's Whisper like on a two-core box. What's it like on four cores, eight cores, all the way up to 96 cores. That's fun. Linode's so great for those kinds of tests. You can spin it up, and you can take a machine and upgrade it and upgrade it and upgrade it. And that's what we did with our Matrix system, too, that we self-host. Our Matrix server started as this little itty-bitty box that we spun up for an episode of Unplugged as a lark to see what it was like to run Matrix. And then we had about 100 people join, and it was like, okay, it's kind of slow, so we expanded a little bit. And then we had another 1,000, and another 1,000, and then another 1,000 join. And so then we expanded and expanded and expanded. And uh, we've now got it up to a huge monster system, and it's running like a champ. Being able, though, to kind of go up or down, we've done down, too. That's really nice. And then, of course, you can tie it in with any kind of tooling you want. So if uh, you like using your Ansible's or your Kubernetes, with your K8s. Yeah, you can do all that over there at the Linode. Just go to linode.com slash SSH to get started. It makes cloud computing simple, affordable, accessible, reliable. We love it. It does all those things. I got an email this weekend from Linode saying, we've detected an underlying issue with the hardware of the host that your VM is on. No action from you is required at this time. We're going to move your VM to a different host. Just wanted to let you know. Nice. I'll often, after an ep- a live stream of self-hosted, I'll get an email the next morning from Linode that says, uh, one of your instances is using a lot of bandwidth tonight. Just so you know, there's a lot more bandwidth being used than normal. And that's people that are catching the Jupyter.tube replay. Yeah. And that whole thing, that PeerTube instance, runs on Linode. And then the storage for all the PeerTube files is on 
object storage on Linode's object storage. It works really well for us. And it lets us uh, record and stream without running out of disk space in the middle of a stream, which is nice. Try it and get 100 bucks at linode.com slash SSH. Go kick the ties. Our more regular listeners will remember that January was the month of Jellyfin. I thought it was time for a very quick Jellyfin update. I'm still using it, which is freaking awesome. It's way better, you know, in terms of stickiness than I ever expected. But there are, I have had a couple of small issues, uh, mostly to do with HDR tone mapping. Um, I don't know. I just really can't get a straight answer from the Google. Sometimes a couple of files turn this weird shade of like magenta, pinky purple. Um, I don't really know what's going on. And sometimes I end up just having to get a different file altogether. Uh, sometimes it works fine in Kodi. Sometimes it works okay in Plex, but I don't know. It, it can just be a bit funky sometimes. I ran into an issue the other day, though, where HDR wasn't magenta. It was just really flat looking in Jellyfin. And so I jumped over to Plex and it worked flawlessly. And, you know, mm. you know how it is when you sit on the couch. Sometimes you don't want to fix it. You just want to effing watch the thing. So I didn't really give it much thought. I loaded up Plex, played, played the show. And then when the end of the episode came up, it said skip credits in the bottom corner. You know how like the skip intro thing is there? And they've implemented an intro skip option for the credits as well, just like Netflix. Oh, that is a great idea. Uh, it kind of feels like they're lapping Jellyfin because I am still waiting for the official Jellyfin intro skipping. It's so painful. Some of these shows, some of these streaming shows have the longest intros. Yeah, The Last of Us is really long. Yeah. Yeah, and some of them have really long credits, too. So being able to skip it is really great. I have also stuck with Jellyfin. It's been, it's been fine. I do think Plex is clearly better at this kind of stuff. And they seem to be able to move faster for some features. Well, they've just got more resources at their disposal because they're an actual company versus an open source project. And, you know, this isn't to say Plex is better than Jellyfin because in the long run, I think we all know what the outcome is going to be. It's just for right now there are things Plex are adding to the clients that make it more polished overall, which Jellyfin needs to catch up with. That said, when I was looking through the small print of the Skip Credits blog post, which will be linked in the show notes, I spotted a sentence, a paragraph, that gave me the heebie-jeebies. So it says, all that processing isn't cheap, with, talking with regards to CPU processing for detecting these credit scenes. So we've also created a cloud-based repository to store the results in case you ever need to rebuild a library. By default, the results of all your local credit detection efforts are anonymously submitted to our new service. So if you ever need to rebuild your library, the results are available in a few seconds instead of burning hours of CPU time recomputing them. Hmm. Privacy implications much? They say anonymous, but do we believe it? If they were to build the intro skipping feature today, would they build it this way? And uh, are they planning to change it? I, I would prefer not this. Let me store that information locally. Why do you need to let me opt out of local storage before opting into the cloud first. I love it when my server is chewing away on a whole library stuff. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's earning its keep. Yeah. 
I love it. I just love like firing up the like I'll put H top on there because you know I want I want to really see the bars go. BPY top, there you go. That's a good time, right? Yeah. You know, and this is uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I can I can see it in a world where self hosting's on a Raspberry Pi, you know, or something like that. I could see it in a world where you're trying to save electricity. It does make me think of it. Does make me wonder how they're doing the anonymous stuff and all of that. Uh, maybe they'll give us some answers on that. How do they know that one episode of Rick and Morty is the same as the next one? You know, maybe maybe it's a different region. Maybe it was a slightly maybe I ripped it on my cable TV box or whatever, and it's slightly different to the next one, different frame rate or something. I don't know what the issue could be. I think what they're saying is the first transcription or whatever it's want to call it, the first analysis will be done locally. And then they'll like hash the results and store them on their clouds instance somewhere, probably in an, you know, at the end of the day, in probably some bucket somewhere. But the insidious part is how it see, it says specifically here, it will transcend clean installs. Yeah. How is it doing that if it's anonymous? Right. Cause it's got to be tied to your Plex login. There's got to be some link somewhere. I just don't see technically how it's possible. It could be that they're using bad technical translation. What they mean is that they're like doing some sort of hash that they can't reverse but they know it's from your account because obviously they're going to restore it when you log in. Okay. Anonymity is an absolute. It either is or it isn't. Hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's not a sort of anonymous. It's like. It's a great buzzword though. <laughs> if they are doing like we're hashing it and then storing that and we can't reverse the hashes, only your system can. And they're calling that anonymous. They're using the wrong language because it's not anonymous. They know who you are. Yeah, you're right. Either way, it's it's a great example of a great idea, but one that maybe isn't quite in the head of the target market. It's the target market for streamers, no doubt, for people that are already all in on like cloud services all the time. But but for those of us that are digital hoarders and collectors, we I like I just said I like it when it runs on my system. Let it rip, baby. Um, plus, sometimes I clean stuff up, and you know, I just like let it rip. I don't care. And I think if you get in the if you get in the head of the enthusiasts, it, these kinds of features for us, they raise more questions, I think, than we're comfortable with. And then we kind of look over at Jellyfin and we think, well, they're never going to do that because they could never pay. They could never afford to do this, right? So it's never going to be an issue with Jellyfin. And like Alex is saying, it it might not have skip intro and now skip credits, but I also don't really ever have to worry about this. It will one day, even if it doesn't have it yet. I have absolute faith in the Jellyfin team that in the long run, they're the right horse to pick. So one of our favorite services was purchased by Apple years ago. And Dark Sky kind of became a community favorite because a lot of us DIYers and self-hosters could build apps and integrations for Home Assistant that pulled in the Dark Sky API that was pretty data-rich, pretty good weather service. But like all good things, it came to an end. And some of us migrated sooner than others. You and I both left it to the last minute, though, didn't we? <laughs> well, I had the opportunity when I reset up the yellow, which was a little bit ago now. So I I set it up then, but um, I realized this afternoon, I don't know if I fixed the studio home assistant incidents. So the API for Dark Sky expired on March the 31st, I think, or April 1st. Yeah. I did mine yesterday, so April 4th. Uh, it's just... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just the kind of week it's been over here. I've been super busy. Uh, and so I, I looked through the Reddits, I looked through the Googles, trying to find all the different alternatives. And I came across this one called 
Pirate Weather, pirateweather.net. They provide a free API, which is dark sky drop-in compatible. And I think it's uh, 10,000 hits of free uh, with their tier, which is equivalent to roughly five-minute updates across the course of a year. So if you've got multiple instances, you're probably going to want to give them some money. If you want to support them to keep doing this, you probably want to give them some money as well and support the project because weather is an expensive business to get access to the back ends you need to get access to. But the upgrade process was actually pretty darn easy. The hardest part was actually creating an API key on the, on the frankly, horribly designed Pirate Weather UI backend for the API. Like you had to go through five or six different layers of, anyway, five minutes, 10 minutes later to generate an API key, throw it into Home Assistant YAML, add the integration, and you're good to go. Yeah, and, and they've really done a great job because it because it is API compatible. You don't really have to update much. Such good information too. Like the data quality, I think is top notch. I think it might be even better. Like the the weather card that I use on my home screen of my home assistant, my Lovelace dashboard. All I had to do was update the source of the entity sensor data from, you know, was it weather.darksky to weather.pirate weather as the entity source. And something about the way in which it presents the information to me feels more accurate. I I, I don't know yet. We'll we'll see because we only did it yesterday, but I'm liking it so far. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I'm uh, another one of those things like like the like the uh, Victron TCP Modbus stuff, that integration, and this Pirate Weather service. Just so thankful because these are things. I uh, I use and depend on, and they make life easier for me. So there's some people out there building tools that us self-hosters depend on that I'm so immensely grateful for. Still need a good iOS and Android dark sky replacement, though. Carrot weather isn't it. When's the last time you tried the built-in weather app? Uh, probably today, and then wait, waiting for the radar to update. It's just painful sometimes on ios i know they've made it better it's just i remember what dark sky used to be like and it's just not as good so you know now that i'm an android guy because you know how i use android now <laughs> with graphene os <laughs> sorry say that again it's called graphene os what <laughs> what you didn't say graphene what did you say <laughs> well you haven't heard of graphene os you haven't heard of graphene giraffine yeah, am, I miss- am i missing a joke there what yeah yeah, yeah it totally is what's going yeah, on it's a joke. No, you don't want to know. It's just a long story. Oh, is it a lup thing? Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of those lup okay. things. Isn't everything? But I wanted to give a recommendation for a really good weather app on uh, Android now. I've really been enjoying Shadow Weather, which reminds me a bit of the Pirate Weather folks. And one of the things I like, in fact, I like it so much that uh, I gosh darn became a premium member. But one of the things that's great about it is it's pulling in multiple weather sources, including open weather. It still claims dark sky. I don't know if they have a commercial version and the Eris weather sources. And it, it synthesizes all of that into a local weather report. I don't think you have shadow weather on iOS, but you got to give, you know, you got to give carrot another try to, cause you can customize the crap out of that. There's lots, you got, you got answers. Which, uh, which phone do you use that Android's on? This one, you know me cause I'm an Android person now. This is the uh, pixel seven pro. Uh, how do you like the curved edges? Cause I always find, I always found those were just a bit annoying. I guess I'm still I'm still enjoying the gimmick, although um, I do accidentally trigger YouTube videos when I go to pick up my phone. Like if I have the YouTube app open and it switches the video I'm watching right in the middle of the video, and I effing hate that. I hope you remember to like, comment, and subscribe to KTZ Systems. 
And ring that bell. That's twice. Hey, we got some boosts, so we're going to read the top four on the show for time. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. But Lima 3 comes in with 9,200 sats. Mentioned that you can use ChatGPT to write Ansible but uh, playbooks, but you better watch it. And then also writes, I want to mention NextDNS as an option for the kids' Wi-Fi. It has built-in time limits and will keep track of what sites they go to. It includes ad blocking by default, and it'll forward your internal DNS to NextDNS for seemingly robust solution. Thanks for it all. All right, so it's NextDNS. That looks really great. Yeah, I'm going to add it to my list of DNS things to check out. Yeah, I'm opening it up in a tab. I have a whole bunch of networking stuff on my to-do list. ViOS is one of them. Mm, really? I've been super happy with the automated pie hole stuff I talked about a few episodes ago. It's been very solid. And whilst I've been doing a lot of testing and stuff, all I've got to do is add one line to my Ansible, run the Ansible playbook, and it updates the DNS locally. It's That's slick. It's wonderful. It's everything I ever wanted. And <laughs> I've had people in the email inbox badgering me to try IPv6 and give it a go mm. after my rant last episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I just don't get it, man. I just don't. I'm just not interested right now. You know. Oh, man, you're only going to get them more fired up. The I IPv6 know, crew is out there. I even told him in my reply that, oh, sorry, it just seems kind of complicated. And yeah, oh, well. They, they need a name like the IPv6 Brigade or something, you know. <laughs> Sir Lurkshalot comes in with 8,022 sats. Uh, he says, I'm really vibing on the idea of stacking W's, as Chris likes to put it. And it's working for me. As a person who struggles with motivation and focus at times, it's really been helping me find things I can be excited about and involve discrete steps I can take and feel good about. And while I know that I'm a really capable person, I struggle with a lot of self-doubt. So the baby step approach is stacking wins, and stacking wins has had the side effect of making me feel more confident in myself. This is the way it works for me, is I get excited about something, I add on to it, and I just keep myself going. For example, I'm excited to provide Jellyfin for my household. So I get the basic setup, that's a win. I already watched a movie together, and it was well-received, that's a win. Next, I'll figure out how to run a VPN for torrent traffic only. That will be a win. I'm already motivated for the next one. Jelly Seer. And if the roomies like it and use it, it's a win. That is a side of self-hosting that we don't talk about an awful lot. It's how you're obtaining a set of skills, very specific, valuable skills. I'm turning into Liam Neeson here. But uh, it's, it's a set of skills that transfers beyond it transcends beyond just hosting a simple jellyfin server or something you know that seems trivial and silly at the time if if i look back over the last decade of my quote unquote linux career you know i started off running a, a plex server and it was a proper gateway drug and here we are you know working for a linux company every day you know so Take those W's, take those wins, and don't be too hard on yourself. You know, you're already elevating yourself above 99% of other Linux job applicants just by having relevant experience in an area that you're clearly passionate about. And I think by solving those real problems for yourself, you're able to talk authoritatively in an interview setting and say, hey, look, I've, I've, we, don't need, we don't need Kubernetes here, do we? We can just have a single Docker host. You know, um, and so for, for me, yeah. for me, keep going, man. Great job. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, man. I think too, I, I definitely appreciate that feeling of uh, you get your whole system set up and you find a great movie, you put it on your rig, 
everything works. You watch the movie, the family likes the movie or your friends, whatever it is, like, enjoy the movie. That is a, that feels good too. So. And then it starts buffering halfway through and you're oh, like, oh no, <laughs> nothing is worse on, yeah, on the flip side. Yeah. Like actually, uh, I had a problem for whatever reason where the rip was bad and, uh, the, the, the lip sync was so bad and everybody was already, we had the popcorn popped, literally bowl full of popcorn popped, ready to watch the movie, had hyped it up. And then it, had lip sync and we couldn't watch the movie bad rip huh maybe you need to need to get your blu-ray tower out and go to the store and buy another blu-ray and i'm, I'm just kidding i know it's a, there's no there's no there, it's an old rip too so there's just no no excuse tom's dad comes in with five thousand sats hey everyone first boost well hey congratulations it was a pita to set up yeah yeah that's why the boosts are so special because some of these paths to get there are a journey he says, on the topic of Obsidian, to keep notes on changes to your home lab, I've been using this method to great success. And he links us to a gist. As you mentioned earlier, with inlining a node into a changelog note, the script will do the connecting between notes for you automatically. Leaving behind the inline allows me to keep each project note separate, but we'll still see a running timeline of what's been done. Thanks for the shows. I would love you tom's dad to ping me on discord and actually walk me through this in a bit more detail because i was looking at this gist earlier and trying to make sense of it and i'll be honest it looks quite complicated there's a lot of regex going on by the looks of it and i just want some extra i've got lots of questions basically because this looks awesome and i am absolutely neck deep in obsidian these days and everything i do goes through it so Anything I can do to streamline that process, I am all about it. You should try to suck uh, suck Brentley in while you're there. I just see what happens. Just see. Just curious. Uh, yeah, so find Alex on Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord. And uh, underscore Sean comes in with our last boost. It's a row of ducks this week. And I pulled this one forward because uh, I, I loved it. It was his very first boost he's ever sent. He says, uh, you guys continue to get great guests. He loves having Alex and Alex together. In fact, he's such a big fan that he set up Fountain just so he could send this boost to us. Keep up the great content. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, big thanks to Alex Ellis for coming on the show last week. It was a great, uh, it was a great time. Yes, I was actually just listening to the episode on my way in today, and I was like, oh yeah. It's funny because for me, it's been it feels like it's been a month, but it, uh, it was only one episode ago. If you'd like to send a boost into the show, there's two paths ahead of you. You can grab a new podcast app and join the revolution at newpodcastapps.com. Fountain is one you'll hear often, and Podverse is a cross-platform one that people love. Or just get Albi. GetAlby.com. Toss some sats in there, either through the Cash app or directly. And uh, go to the Podcast Index website and just boost from the webpage and keep your damn podcast app. It's real easy. GetAlby.com and then Podcast Index. Or if you'd like to pay us with fiat fund coupons and keep us on the air as things get a little weird out there in the ad market, you can become a member at selfhosted.show slash SRE. You're investing in the ongoing production of this here podcast, and we appreciate it. And as a thank you, we give you an ad-free version of the show and a little extra members-only post-show that gets added on there. You can sign up at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Don't forget to check out the meetups page. Like we said, we have one literally the day after this show airs on Saturday the 8th of April, and the meetup in Olympia in a couple of weeks after that. So meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And for all the ways to get in touch with us, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. You can find me on Twitter, I guess, at Chris Lass, or find me in the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. Twitter's lasted a bit longer than we thought so far, hasn't it? Yeah. 
it's still up, still running. It's uh, go. It's got some damn dog icon at the moment. Even if it's plastered in Dogecoin right now. Yeah, it's it's still running somehow. I I don't know though. I I don't find it as much fun as I used to. I will say. Uh, but you know what is fun? Hanging out with Brentley. In fact, come get a little Brentley over at Office Hours, right? That's where Brent really cuts loose. Mm, yeah, careful. Office Hours dot hair for that one. And kind of, he flexes. You'll see he'll, he'll show, you know, his skills and his, yeah, get him to admit stuff on air. It's a good time. Office Hours dot hair for that. And for the self-hosting crowd, I think probably one of the most relevant LUP episodes in a while was 503. Brent did a great breakdown for us on location of the Nextcloud Hub 4 release. That was fun, yeah, in on location in Berlin and got to hang out with the Nextcloud crew, well, for an entire week and then for an entire other week and uh, had a great time. So we got some pretty great context from the inner workings of that open source team. It was great. And if you want to find me generally, I think Linux Unplugged is a great place for that, linuxunplugged.com. And thanks for listening, everybody. That was self-hosted.show slash 94.